Let's open in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2, as we continue our series in the pastoral epistles, we're going to read a very difficult passage this morning. We're going to take two weeks to wrestle through this text, so I want you to bear with us. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and starting in verse 8. Hear now God's word. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would give us spiritual eyes to see. I pray that you would give us spiritual ears to hear what your word would teach us this morning. You can do that, and so we ask boldly in Jesus' name, amen. Let a woman learn quietly, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Do you ever just want to grab the Apostle Paul and pull him aside and say, Brother, there's a dozen ways to say what you just said, and you picked my least favorite way. I mean, this is kind of offensive to hear this. Now, as we kind of walk through this text, I want to say at the outset, we are not doing a survey on what the Bible has to say about biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. We may do that someday. Paul is using eight verses here to get to a very specific point, and in doing an expository sermon, we must follow him to that point. But it helps us to say something at the outset, which is an overarching concern that all of us have when we approach a passage like this. There's something valuable I learned from a fellow pastor, the pastor of Redeemer Church, Tim Keller, that when you're backed into a corner in an argument and you don't know how to get out, you paint the opposition in two extremes and then you find yourself in the balanced middle, and all will be well. That's what we're going to do as we approach this passage. You could think about the extreme leftist approach to this passage, perhaps the more liberal interpretation to say that everything that Paul is saying here is completely bound to the context in Ephesus. There's nothing that he's telling Timothy to tell this church that we should apply today, because it has everything to do with their context. Well, that won't do. We can't interpret uh, submissiveness and authority that way in 1 Timothy because it happens all over the Bible. We see passages similar to this, at least with respect to submission and to authority in other places in Scripture. And if we start taking it out here, we have to start taking it out there. And if we get in the habit of taking out whole paragraphs of our Bible, then nothing is safe. We do not stand over the authority of God's Word. It stands over us. So we must delve deeper into this. That's the leftist approach. Perhaps the bizarre kind of extreme fundamentalist approach would be to say, I heartily agree with Paul. He's a chauvinist pig and I am too. The only proper place for a woman is quiet and pregnant. But that won't do either because that's not the way the Apostle Paul treats women in his ministry, right? The Apostle Paul, following in the footsteps of Jesus, gave women all kinds of new and unique opportunities in ministry that they had never had under the Jewish system. Paul, in his ministry, he gathers around himself co-workers that are women. 
you could make the argument that we would not have a church in Ephesus and we would not have a Timothy to send to Ephesus if we had not had godly, vocal women in the book of Acts. Think about it. Paul, before he gets to Ephesus, goes to Philippi and one of his most important converts in Philippi is Lydia. She's a leading woman in the city. She comes to faith and she begins to host the church in her home. Philippi, Paul says, supported him financially when he went out from there. And he went on to several other cities, one of which is Ephesus. So without Lydia, we don't know if Paul would have made it financially to Ephesus. And when he arrives in Ephesus, he meets an important couple. Priscilla and Aquila, who are laying the groundwork for the church in Ephesus. They teach Apollos the true gospel. They lay the groundwork in Ephesus. They perhaps had a church meeting in their house in Ephesus. So once again, if you do not have this important dynamic couple, you don't have a church in Ephesus. We already made the point that Timothy himself owes a great amount of his faith to his mother and his grandmother who raised him learning the word of God. Lois and Eunice, that Paul will celebrate in 2 Timothy, had a big hand in Timothy's conversion. You begin to to kind of relegate women to a quiet place in the church based on this passage, and you miss vocal, spirit-filled, godly, passionate, zealous women who participated together to see this church planted, to see Timothy sent to this place, and to see what God's going to do through here. If you don't have women doing that, you don't have this church, and you don't have Timothy. Well, I told you guys I wasn't going to do a survey on manhood and womanhood, and you've already tricked me. I've started to talk about this, Um, but I think it's important how we approach our Bibles. I think it's important that we approach our Bibles with a hermeneutic of faith and love, right? If you come to a paragraph like this and you fold your arms and you sigh heavily and you say, tell me what you have to say about women, I suspect that short of a miracle, none of us are going to hear anything from God's word. But if we come to a passage like this and we remember its author, that he is the one who has created us in his image, male and female, he created us. He recreates us in his son and adopts us into his family as brothers and sisters. He has grand designs for us to be his bride. If we remember that he is the author of God's word, then I suspect we will always get something from a passage like this because we are coming humbly ready to hear what God has to say. Now, Kevin reminded us last week that when we transitioned from chapter 1 to chapter 2, Paul began to give an attention to what we do in our public worship. So Paul is is asking and answering the question, what is the goal of gathering here on Sunday morning? Why do we do this? Why do we come together? Why do we gather? Why do we have public worship? And why can't we do what we're doing here in our own home alone in front of a YouTube screen? Why is this important? Well, Paul outlines the duties and responsibilities of public worship, and here's what he says our goal is when we get together. Our goal as a church on Sunday morning is to create a space of worship that looks upward to God in prayer and praise, and it looks outward to the world in longing love. That's what we do. We gather here, all the elements are working towards those two things, looking up in prayer and praise, looking outward to the world in the same way that God looks out to the world in the first half of chapter two with a desire that none should perish. We look outward with longing love. You know, when the leadership of CPC got together to think about what we do on Sunday morning and all the cultural tidbits, where we stand, what we do, who gets up, what the liturgy looks like, how we dress, what we do about the coffee hour, we had two controlling words that kind of helped organize this service. And they were, we want to create a space that's reverent yet accessible. 
right? Do you see how that mirrors what, what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy chapter 2? We want a place that's reverent and accessible. I recently went out to lunch with somebody from this church, and they said, you know, one of the things I appreciate about Sunday morning worship is we are serious here about worshiping the Lord, and it's a place that I feel like I can bring anybody. I can bring a peer, I can bring somebody younger than me, somebody older than me, and they will understand what's going on in this service. That's our joy. That's what we're here to do. Create a space that's reverent and accessible. Worships God, loves other people. Well, that's, that's simple. I mean, that's only two steps that we have to do, but it's not easy, right? It's simple, it's not easy, it's clear what our objective is, but it's very hard to get at that objective. And Paul, he could, in this passage, list hundreds of obstacles that stand between us and that goal, but he wants to focus on three. He's going to lay out three obstacles that stand between us and our church in public worship and and this goal of doing that. And here's what his three obstacles are. Men's anger, women's dress, and gender roles. Men's anger, women's dress, gender roles. We're going to look at all three of these obstacles in turn over the next two weeks. And something that you'll notice about each of these obstacles is they each contain a cultural element that's bound to the Ephesian context, and they each contain a substantive element that applies to us today. That's going to be very clear as we begin to walk through this. But let's start with the very first obstacle, men's anger. Look at verse 8. I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The first uh, obstacle that stands between us and a place that's reverent and accessible is men's anger. Now here's the contextual element. We we skipped over this and we hardly noticed it. It says, when the men pray, I want them to lift holy hands. I want them to lift their hands. Now, Paul can't possibly be saying that every time a male prays, he's got to lift his hands, right? He's not not saying that. I'm sitting at the breakfast table with my family, and I go to bless the food, and Judah, my son, and I have to raise our hands, and the women have to keep their hands at their sides, and that's how we pray. No, we hardly even notice this this contextual tidbit because we intuitively get this about the Bible, that, that posture is important in the Bible, but it's not woodenly prescribed. There are lots of other ways that the Bible talks about posture and prayer. We can raise our hands, fold our hands, we can hold hands with other people. If we struggle with ADD, we can sit on our hands. There are lots of ways that we can pray. What's really at stake is not our hands so much as our heart, right? Where is our heart when we come to prayer? That's the substantive element here. No matter what, no matter what our hands are doing, we come to prayer in holiness and without anger or fighting. Nobody is saying that that element is cultural, right? Nobody is saying holiness and and avoiding anger and quarreling. That's just cultural. That's bound to the Ephesian context. In the modern world, with all its stresses, we can't actually ask men to come to prayer without fighting with each other. That's just unreasonable. No, nobody who's taking God's word seriously is saying that. What we're saying is, if at times you pray with your hands in different positions, you may still be praying rightly. But if you pray, no matter what your hands are doing, without a heart that's submissive to the Lord in holiness and does not fight with your brother next to you, if you miss that, you've missed everything. You've missed the entire reason you're coming to the Lord in prayer. That's the substantive element. Men of CPC, we need to ask ourselves this question. The hands that that God calls us to bring to worship, holy hands to lift in prayer, Where have they been this week? And what have they been up to? 
there's, Paul highlights anger, and there's a world of damage that angry hands can do without ever throwing a punch. Where have our hands been? Have we pointed them in an accusation against another person when Jesus is pleading with us to die to our rights and to, to forgive somebody who's offended us? Do we clench our fists in defiance at work or at home when God says that he wants us to obey those over us cheerfully? Do we have heavy hands that slam doors and pots and pans in this weird passive aggressive way that lets everybody in the house know that we're angry, but we're not humble enough to come and to ask for forgiveness? Where have these hands been? Don't we see that when we come to this place of public worship and our goal is to look upward and outward, when we bring angry hands to this sanctuary, we are working to undo what everybody else here is working to build. Men of CPC, we must confess angry hands to the Lord. We must confess our infighting and our quarreling and our bickering and our unholiness and our passive aggressiveness. We must run to Jesus and find his forgiveness and walk with a savior who read he did not bend and wick he did not snuff out, who died on the cross for the very angry hands that nailed him there. That's where we find freedom. And when we do that, when we come humbly with confession, We lift holy hands in surrender to that Lord and we ask him to forgive us and we join in the kind of worship space that he's creating. That will undo worship, men's anger in our midst. The second obstacle that Paul says is women's dress. Look at verses nine through 10. He says, likewise also that women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, again, you have a cultural and a substantive element working here. Paul lists the adornments that that the women of Ephesus are struggling with. And the reason he picks these particular elements, the braided hair, the gold, the pearls, is because that kind of dress mirrored and it imitated the huge prostitution cult in Ephesus. Women were actually coming into the worship service looking the exact same as women who were prostituting themselves in Ephesus. And Paul says, this is a complete distraction to the worship service. We cannot have this when we come together and worship. Women, you must attend to your adornment. That's the cultural element. Now, if you've worn braided hair today, that's okay, because we're looking for the cultural equivalent today. If Paul were writing this letter to us today, we might be talking about a a yoga outfit or a midriff top. I don't know what he would say is the equivalent for today, but the substantive element is here. Paul is saying we actually communicate very strong messages with how we dress. We communicate something. And the goal of the worship service is to look upward in praise and outward in love What are you, women of CPC, communicating with your wardrobe? What message are you teaching all the while we're teaching a different message from the front of the room? Is your dress grasping at a kind of attention that can only be found in Christ? Is your dress um, fighting and competing with how God made your body to change it? Is your your dress trying to one-up the woman who is sitting next to you? We usually just talk about dress in terms of, strictly in terms of modesty and men's lust, but that's all true. 
but let's have a spirit-filled imagination of what dress can communicate and what we tell other people. Because there are people here in our midst this morning and every morning who are not believers. There are people here who are young Christians. There are young girls who are growing up in this church, and all of them are listening very carefully to what the women in our church are wearing. And God forbid that the message they hear is that the way to be loved is to look good. That there's only one appropriate body type. That you can size another person up by the brand of their clothes that they're wearing. Don't you see that we are here as a church to proclaim one mediator between God and man and his name ain't Louis Vuitton? His name is the Lord Jesus. And we communicate that when we come humbly with our dress. Our, our adornment and our dress, it speaks volumes and it speaks to the women we are seeking to disciple in this church. Women of CPC, you guys do crazy things. Crazy things with image and clothing. And you've been taught that from a very young age by our culture. We have a spirit-filled opportunity in this place to change that culture, to be women who are following hard after Jesus, who have found a sweetness and a freedom in him that makes what we wear irrelevant compared to the fact that Jesus finds us where we are and saves us. You can communicate that in the way you come to worship on Sunday morning. Let us do that together. Let's run and find his forgiveness and let us dress with that freedom and let's begin to invite women in our neighborhood and young girls growing up in this church into that same kind of freedom. Well, Paul finally hits on gender roles in verses 11 through 15. That's the most controversial one and that's the one we want to dedicate next Sunday to as we preach through that. But Paul has been outlining these obstacles. There's these three obstacles, men's anger and women's dress and gender roles that keep us from coming to a place that looks upward in worship and outward in longing love. You know, several weeks ago, I was kayaking with my brother-in-law, and uh, he was in the front, I was in the back. We jumped into the bay in Delaware, and we picked a point on the horizon, and we said, that's where we're going. And we set off paddling, and we never made it to that point. We, we drifted left, we drifted right, we ran into several waves that came up over the kayak, it was a mess, I was frustrated with him, he was frustrated with me, and it wasn't until the end of our time that we realized that each of us thought the other person was steering. I thought that was the front guy's job, he thought that was the back guy's job, clearly I was wrong, um, and we never got anywhere, we just went in circles the entire time, and we were exhausted, but we didn't get anywhere. Paul is putting a point on the horizon for our worship service, right? He's saying... Friends, brothers, sisters, this is where we're headed. This is where we're going. We're creating a space here. We're doggedly, by God's grace, creating a space here that is reverent and accessible, that worships God and takes that seriously, that looks upward to him in praise and prayer, and it also looks out to the world in the same way that God looks out to the world, with longing love, desiring that none should perish, but all could come and know his son, Jesus. When we fight and bicker, and bring unholy hands of anger, when we outdress the person next to us or underdress, when we put our rights first, when we put our attention, uh, attention on ourselves and not on the Lord Jesus, we're like two kayakers that are hacking in circles in the water. Friends, if we gather in this place, if we are in step with the Spirit, 
if we are confessing these things to the Lord, if we are finding the roles and the places that God has assigned to us, if we are getting the attention off of ourselves and on to Jesus, this becomes a powerful place of witness to a watching world. Let's pray together. Jesus, even now you are fighting to make this worship service a safe and a reverent and an accessible place. You can do that, Lord. But to do that, you need to strip away in us our anger and our infighting and our bickering and our one-upmanship against each other. And you will. And you will make this a space that looks upward to you in worship and outward to our brother and our sister and our neighbor in longing love. We plead for that. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen.